Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. I hope you've all had a fantastic week. This week I'm continuing the conversation with Michael Rout, a Canadian artist who signed to Daptone Records um, and has a very distinctive kind of late 60s through 70s sound. Um, if you haven't already, go and check out his records. He's got a new album coming out imminently. Um, in fact, it came out last week um, on June the 10th. And uh, I have i mean, I heard it before it came out. It's unbelievable. Um, I put a few of his tracks in the Spotify playlist that's attached to this podcast. Um, so go and check that out if you wanna, want that as your first port of call. But go and listen to the new album. It's uh, It's really, really fantastic. Um, okay, so we'll get straight into it. Here we go. Uh, second half of my conversation with Michael Rout. We may as well focus the conversation around the new record, obviously, because that's what's coming. But, um, you know, talk to me about sort of the, maybe the beginnings of that record and how... Well, um, it kind of started basically in the winter of 2018 and very tail end of 2018 when I, when I stopped touring the last record. Um, and it was also just a real period of a lot of endings. I've been on the road a lot. So a relationship broke up through that. And then I, my band kind of got driven into the ground too and decided that they weren't, which is just my live touring band. Um, they decided they didn't want to tour anymore. And we had to cancel a few dates actually too. And then I basically just was stuck in a, uh, the frozen winter of Montreal for a while, kind of wondering why I was there, but I knew I needed to start writing this record. So I, I kind of initially started with going through a bunch of folders of old instrumental demos that I'd made, um, which is not, this isn't really a normal thing. This was kind of a weird, like hidden bonus uh, of this record was like, usually I don't just write only instrumentals. I mean, sometimes I do. Sometimes I write instrumentals. Sometimes I write songs entirely all together. But this was just like a bunch of stuff that I had literally not thought of in like a year and a half since I was like throwing ideas around um, for the previous record. Um, and they didn't make the record or they were like made kind of at the tail end when there was like the record kind of had already taken form. And then I completely forgot about them and started going through that stuff and then started writing on top of it and sort of cutting it up into different sections in my computer and, and making different things up and sometimes adding things completely from scratch to places that needed things. Um, and that was kind of the very beginning of it. And then I started to write some songs more from scratch in that period of time too. And then, um, then I met Pearl and I, I like came down to LA and then I came back and decided to leave Montreal. And at that point I moved all my stuff to my mom's house in Edmonton and was spending most of my time in LA. But as I mentioned before, when Pearl would be on tour with her band, I would, there'd be no reason for me to stay in LA. So I'd go back to Edmonton and I would had a studio, a little home studio set up in uh, the attic at my mom's house. And so I wrote a bunch of stuff there. Um, and this is, I think the whole record was written pre COVID. Oh, cool. Um, then I, I went on tour with um, this African band. We intend to cause havoc, havoc, which uh, it's called witch, but it's an acronym. Uh, that's like a seventies African band that I play guitar with sometimes. And I did my first tour with them in October of 2019 and it ended in New York. And I started recording the record then. Um, so the record was definitely written by that point in time. We started recording the beds in like November of, of 2019. 
And I did a couple trips to New York in the end of 2018, beginning of 2000, or sorry, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And ultimately we were really close to finishing it. We thought in like March of 2020 and we were recording in Riverside at the Daptone West sort of studio. Um, Gabe Roth owns another studio in Riverside called Penrose. Um, and we were really close and then, you know, everything just shut down. And so ultimately that kind of threw it into the record ended up evolving a lot from that point. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Initially it might've not evolved as much. It might've just kind of stayed as it was, which maybe would have been more similar to the previous record. uh, And then we would have mixed it in Riverside, which was the same way it was mixed last time. Ultimately, as it all sort of uh, played out, I eventually ended up asking them to like send me all the tracks and stuff so I could mess around with it on my own. And I ended up messing around with it by myself, uh, which is in a very limited at that time home studio. I had very little gear during, well, you know, when things, most of my stuff was still in Edmonton when everything froze down. So it was a very inconvenient time for me to suddenly be stuck on one side or the other side of the border. (laughs) Um, So some of it was just at home with a very limited setup. And then some of it eventually was working at, um, Mac DeMarco's studio in LA oh, yeah. who we're both from Edmonton and our families are actually old, old family friends. So um, it was kind of cool to reconnect with him in a way that we haven't really done since. I mean, we've seen each other a lot, but playing music together uh, as intensely as we did for a little while on the record uh, was sort of maybe the first time since we were like teenagers. And then uh, after that, it went over to Pearl's producer, Louis Pesikov's studio. Um, and we did a ton of overdubbing. And then ultimately, as I mentioned before, it got sent off to Austin to be mixed remotely by James Valentine at um, a studio over there. It's White Denim Studio, uh, oh. who he works with quite a bit. But um, so, yeah, so this record kind of really took a left turn, basically fully because of COVID. And so COVID didn't really influence the writing of the record, but it really did influence the production. And everything was so delayed that it kind of opened up um, more room for just slightly aimless experimentation. <laughs> I think before that, I was like, like I got to get a record out within a few years of the last record, hopefully even two and a half or something. And I got to tour it again. So there's a little bit of a utilitarian element to the beginning of the record. Whereas when the world ended and we weren't really sure if it was going to start again, things sort of were so loose that it was just like, well, let's just bring it over to this person's studio. Let's try this. Let's take this thing out and add that thing back in. And it, I think it ultimately made the record to my ear a, a more exciting record the fact that it kind of just got sort of blown up and put back together so many times i i love that and uh, you when you listen to um so your music stylistically has a lot of uh there's a lot of nice little bits of ear candy happening all over the place and it kind of makes sense listening to you talking about it like that if you had you're having the time to to go like oh let's let's try this and try that and there's all these like little bits of of sort of goodness that that sort of take you by surprise all the way along and and uh it just keeps it really fresh when you you know i can't help but you just you sort of listen along to it and then suddenly something happens and you're like oh fuck yes love that <laughs> and then another- I feel like that's, you, you mentioned 10cc as an influence uh earlier and i think that i was thinking about this the other day i had to listen to the record for the first time a little bit of it for the first time in a while i had to give it a break for me but i listened to a bit of it recently and it reminded me of um 10 cc just like i mean they're much more extreme about this than i am obviously their songs are so like strangely structured and just have like sometimes just have like endlessly changing patterns that don't ever repeat um and but it makes it so that when you listen to one of their albums 
you'll like hear something that you loved and then be like later on be like what song was it and you're starting every song like trying to find it and you're like it's not okay. at the beginning of any of these songs it might it must be somewhere in the middle of these like endlessly changed so then you have to listen to the whole record again to try to find the thing eventually you know the record well enough that you know that it's like somewhere around like the one minute mark of this song is like the coolest thing ever but i do feel like i've gotten more and more influenced by that to like put little easter eggs into the albums my songs are a little bit more linear than that but Still, there's things that happen only one time that are like special little moments that it's like you have to kind of most songs end up having something like that in them. It's kind of like have something that if you actually listen to the entire song for the entire record, you can find all these little Easter egg moments. So I think 10CC has kind of given me that uh, perspective and, and influenced me to do that. I love calling it Easter eggs is great. <laughs> Such a good way of putting it. It's, it, yeah it's i mean I, I think it's just such a, a nice way of, of listening to stuff i mean like I, obviously i think beatles music is full of that i mean i mm-hmm. i don't think there's been a single conversation for the podcast where i haven't brought the beatles up i'm sorry to do it again that's that's but, totally fine i mean i love the beatles i avoid talking about them too much in my in my i feel like the, the only thing that's annoying is like the last record you know we put out one of the songs and i just feel like people are just like sounds like the beatles and you're like yeah, I guess that's you can just <laughs> you can just say that. <laughs> but anyway, talk about the Beatles as much as possible. Well, I, I just they, you know, I mean, from a drumming perspective, Ringo does stuff all the time that's one time only, and yeah, it's a it's the sort of thing you know Joe Public listening to it wouldn't notice, and then you break you start breaking it down, and you're like, ah, that's why it sounds like that. And there's so many examples of it, and it's a such a bold. It's quite a bold thing to do. Um, in the arrangement of- in general, drums and everything, I feel like that kind of approach of even if the song, so like unlike 10CC where it's like their form could just be like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then maybe go back to A eventually or something. <laughs> like it's like it doesn't necessarily ever repeat. But even if your song is just like, you know, and like, you know, a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, even if it is that and it's relatively straightforward song structure, you can still make it so the third verse has a completely different arrangement or like, you know, or when it comes back to the, like when it comes back to the hook could be sung in like halftime over top of the beat. So now it's like really long stuff like that. The Beatles, you know, I think on Dear Prudence, they do something like that. The Beatles do all those things where you're like, basically, even as a, even not, not only just Joe public, like even as a relatively educated listener, unless you're actually thinking about it, you're like, cool. Okay. We're back to the chorus. And then it's like, only if you're actually like, wait a second, it's actually like in a different, like stretched out longer over top of the beat now or it's like there's also like this this verse has everything stripped away and just droning sitar or something you know it's just like these things where you're like that doesn't you know it's really liberating i guess when you start to think you don't have to just go back to the same arrangement because you're playing the second verse like it doesn't have to be the same arrangement as the first verse it can be completely different and then these records start to seem you know very unique from moment to moment instead of kind of being this repetition that's exactly it. unique from moment to moment it means that you can a record's got some staying power you know i i tend to listen to a lot of music in the car so put a cd on and i'll often listen to it two or three times through without changing the cd and then the journey will finish and i'll get out and go back in the car and listen to it twice more so you know in two car journeys i've listened to a record five six times and I enjoy that, but one of the things I like about what we're talking about is how fresh it makes the music feel. Because every time you're listening back through it, you're noticing more stuff, and you, the deeper you get into it, 
the deeper your thought process as a writer has gone into it you realize quite how deeply you've thought about it you've not just made a sound and played the songs with that sound it's like ah you you know you really have dug into every little corner of this song and thought about everything and it's a it means that you can repeat it listen you know listen to it repeatedly and it still feels fresh and it's good totally and it's just fun to make stuff that way too i think it's like a weird it's like a breaking of your uh it's like breaking some sort of shell in your mind of like linear thinking or something it's like kind of like instead of being like super i don't know instead of approaching everything super repetitively and robotically of just being like well we figured it out so let's just do it this way because it works utilitarianly utilitarianly you can kind of start to i don't know it's just kind of more fun to be like we can do anything whenever we want really and even playing live is also a fun thing for that too where it's like you can sort of start to allow for even more improvisation than the, that is on the records at times so i mean that's the only way to keep it interesting for me personally <laughs> as a musician and also and and as a listener too i tend to gravitate gravitate towards bands that have that sort of approach how cool was uh, were the guys at Daptone with you taking the um, the multi tracks and sort of doing your thing with them, um, or do they like were they concerned that they wanted to keep the sound in house, or kind of how does how did that all feel to them? It was a little uncomfortable, I think, and it was a little weird, but it was also just an uncomfortable and weird time. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that at that point in time, like we're having these conversations in you know April May of 2020, so that was like basically when. I feel like basically everyone worldwide was just sinking in. That it's like, this isn't just going to be a couple of weeks of, of nothing. And, and we don't know what's going to come next really. Um, you know, this is conversations about like, well, I'd like to finish the record soon. So we should try to figure it out. And then there's also like, yeah, but when are we going to put it out? Cause like, when are you ever going to be able to tour again? And it's kind of like, I don't know if I'll ever tour again. I don't know. Like that point in time, it was really like, I just, yeah, let's just well. finish the record at least while we can. Um, so um, it was a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that that was, everybody understood that it was just sort of the, the place that we were all in. And ultimately it was, uh, maybe a little foreign for them to have it leave house to be finished. But, um, we did, we had a bunch of mixers mix stuff and ultimately we all really loved, uh, James's mixes. And, um, Gabe was still. Gabe still sort of served, although um, remotely this time, but Gabe's, Gabe Roth, who runs Daptone, still sort of served the same role that he did in the previous mixing process. The previous was Wayne Gordon at Gabe's studio, and, and Gabe would come in and out and sort of oversee things, and, and, every, and he would always be sort of involved in, in the final sign-off on a mix before we moved on from it. Um, and the way that we did it this time was ultimately James mixing it and me and Gabe and James all on the phone talking uh, and, and Gabe would have a lot of input and feedback and things that he w- wanted to hear change. So it still ultimately had the quality control that every Daptone record has on it. Um, and ultimately we had a really great person mixing it anyways, which is one of the things that Daptone really has going for them is just really great engineers uh, and producers. So, um, but yeah, it was weird. It was, I think it is very unusual for them and it wasn't something that I would have like pushed for, uh, it wasn't something that I planned for whatsoever uh, uh, before. It just kind of was basically just the rolling with the punches and just trying to figure out how to make it, things work after everything's gone completely foobar on you. So uh, <laughs> we kind of just waited it out and and eventually got back to working the way we did. And I think everybody ultimately was happy with 
the with the results. So I think it worked out. I w- I'm want to sort of talk about the just the recording process and getting the basic tracks down. I know you talked about going off to do overdubs somewhere else, but how did the how did the initial um, start of a track kind of was there a, a general routine for getting a track started? How did the recording process sort of go about? Um, both the last records I tracked with a drummer and a bass player uh, at Daptone with me um, usually live off the floor. Although this record, I kind of sometimes didn't play live with them. I was kind of just more focused on really wanting to have the rhythm section sound good. The last record was maybe a little bit more of a live three-piece record. And this one was more overdubbing on top of the bass and drums. Um, they're, both records are basically, um, I think this is basically the Daptone way generally of micing the drums. It's definitely Wayne Gordon's way is just uh, one kick mic and one overhead. There's no close mics besides that, on, except besides the kick. The um, that's, that's yeah, the, it is really cool. I mean, it's such, a, it's such a challenge to do it well. I mean, I, I like to use close mics personally, but I, <laughs> when I'm engineering, but I think that's partially just because I'm like, it takes so much time to get the overhead balanced properly and it requires really good drumming too. Um, like a really good drummer. Um, so yeah, all that's very challenging. They're very good at it. Um, but yeah, that's that was the kickoff. And then this one, we actually brought in more other musicians to overdub the last time I did most of the overdubs myself. But usually in both cases, I had pretty well flushed out demos. So, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. It's like the process is like, I have a pretty much finished demo that has all of the things on it. I don't make them really for like, I don't think too much about the audio quality when I'm making them because I know it's just a demo and I don't want to get too attached to it. But in terms of the arrangement, it's pretty well thought out, even at times to the, like to a lot, like a lot of the bulk of the backup vocals and stuff and lead parts and stuff are like mostly there, but then you do that. And like, so the beginning of the record is like recreating that um, with like maybe occasional slight, maybe occasionally you're experimenting with that, but it's kind of oftentimes just like this works, we should do this. And then it starts to become the process of then uh, diverging from the blueprint at some point it starts to be kind of like, maybe that thing shouldn't be there. Maybe we should add this. Maybe we could like put this whole thing there. Oh, maybe it needs more backup vocals than I initially thought. Maybe we should cut out the backup vocals there. So it starts out recreating the demos and then eventually it becomes like throwing the demo in the trash bin and just making whatever seems like it works with the performances and the actual recordings we have that we're working with now. How are you as a, as an artist, how, how are you with that process? <laughs> I'm, I'm always curious. Like, are you, do you become attached to the demos? Do you, you know, are you, or are you open to new ideas or how, you know, how do you approach it? Um, I've been guilty of being attached to the demos at times. I've been, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't think I get overly attached to it in the way that maybe I feel like it might be slightly an inexperienced thing that maybe I used to do more than maybe other artists do when they're less experienced to a degree might get sort of overly attached to a demo. I think I'm able to be somewhat objective about like not about not like it's like a, a, you know about understanding that it's like there's things about the demo that are not good that we should not try to recreate it's not as good as it could be um on the other hand you do want to capture the essence of the vibe and stuff and so you know I think I tend to be pretty good about trying to just create something that works in the moment with the new recording rather than being too attached to the original thing and accepting that it's going to be different, but probably better at the end of the day. Um, But I do sometimes have moments of anxiety about like, you know, there was one song that I changed the key because I felt like I was like struggling 
on the demo that was higher a little bit, although I was pulling it off, but I was like, I think maybe it'd be better for me to sing it lower. And then ultimately for a while, I've come to peace with this, but you know, there was a while where I was quite anxious that I was like, is the whole recording like just so much less bright now in a lower key? Like, is it just like less like pop? Like, is it just popping less in a lower key? Which is funny because I'm not usually that type of person who has like favorite keys or something. Like I'm kind of like, whatever, you can do everything in every key. But um, this was a moment where I was like, I think like the semitone or full step up, whatever it was, might've really made it like pop. Mm. and i got over it and the new version is definitely better than the demo but i <laughs> but things like that occasionally i'll be like oh no did i make a mistake should it be more like the demo but you know that's just part of making things i think occasionally you find yourself worried that you've taken a wrong turn but usually you can figure out a way to get it back on the road i think i i find what it's just it's interesting what you're saying i i struggle with um almost the opposite of like as a rather than worrying about stuff I get concerned that I don't worry enough about stuff because I'm trying to be so far down there oh it will all just be you know that's just what happened it's going to be fine so then I I tend to I tend to go to the other extreme which is to to not fret about it enough and I'm thinking should I should I be listening through to this more and concentrating more should I be more picky about things and and ask for I think your way is probably smart I feel, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously you want to try to make good stuff and it requires a certain amount of quality control. But at the same time, I think I used to be extremely perfectionist to the point of like almost ruining the process for myself. And uh, actually when I was working with Mac on the stuff, I remember asking him at one point when we were listening to the tracks and just, I mean, we just added minimal overdubs at his place and we're kind of messing around with mixing it, but then we never kept the mixes. So it was just kind of experimenting for fun with the stuff more or less yeah. at the end of the day. Although some of the tracking was made it on some of those little bits and pieces that we added very like top level cherries on top type things um but i remember asking him if one of the performances was too pitchy like i don't really i don't pitch correct my vocals at any at all at this point in time in my life really um not because i'm like completely against it or anything but i just feel like i can do it and i'm trying to like embrace have I, like i can do it and actually sing it and i feel like i'm trying to embrace whatever level of imperfection there is rather than trying to fix it at this point in time in my life but i asked mac about it and i was kind of having one of those slightly anxious moments of being like i was like is it too out of pitch is it okay is this like insane like is this and he was like and most of the he was like most of the most popular records i've made were all when i was like had a totally fucked up studio that i had no idea what i was doing and those records are fucking out of pitch like fucking crazy like he was like i don't <laughs> didn't put, listen to my vocal take on any of those songs like it's not like in tune uh and he was like yeah, but his perspective was very much like, he's like, I don't think people care really in the way that you're thinking about it. Really. And I think that's been a big effect, uh, has, has had a big effect on me. It's been a big influence. And it's sort of uh, between him and many other people and just loosening up in general in my life, I think I'm coming closer and closer to where you're at from what you're saying. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, you yeah, know, it's going to be cool. Sounds sweet. And it's like all my favorite records all sound fucked up. I'm mean, sorry. I don't have a lot to swear on your show. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a very grown up show. You're fine. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. I tend Sometimes to go a bit people... because my dad listens to it and I don't want my dad to hear me swearing too much. <laughs> I try not to just to sound like I can like actually talk without swearing like a sailor. But occasionally I just... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like all, all my favorite records I listen to all sound, you know, various degrees of out of time and out of tune and out of pitch. Obviously, it's something again, something to strive towards and try not and try to get it as good as you can. But at the end of the day, like most of those records, I'm definitely not listening to them being like, oh, 
that one kick drum hit in the third bar was just slightly ahead and it ruined the whole thing for me. You know, it's, <laughs> I, don't, I don't listen to other people's music like that. It's only making it that I get that obsessive. And I don't know if it's really conducive to like making like enjoyable records necessarily. No, I, I think you're right. What's, um, what's Max place? Like I've got, uh, I've got the, um, I forgot his name now. Jeff Tweedy's son's book about uh, recording uh, a book about home studios, and he's oh, cool. taking photos of everyone's home studios. And there's a lot of pictures of Mac DeMarco's place, and it seems it, like it, it's a pretty cool place. Is it the one? It's his current one in the garage in LA. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I think. yeah, it's great. I mean, he's got crazy gear in there. He's just got. I mean, he's made quite a success of himself, and he's one of his main things that he likes to. Uh, spend money on his gear so it's really cool it's just a it's a bit of an anomaly it's pretty unique in my experience with home studios in the sense that it's got you know it's close to rivaling a very high-end professional studio in terms of the amount and quality of gear that he has but it's also just in a like single car garage out back of his house in la (laughs) so it's not like there's no like crazy big you know big studio you know recording room like you would get at a big LA studio, but it's got a lot of really nice stuff. And it's also just fun to go over and hang out with him. He's obviously a very funny person, as everyone knows, and he's very enjoyable to hang out with. So going over there and just hanging out in his backyard by the pool and going into the garage and recording with all this crazy gear is definitely uh, a fun thing to do. Um, Talk to me about working with Wayne Gordon and kind of what you learned, you know, coming into Daptone as a sort of a, you know, freshly signed to them and, and then coming to work and getting to work with this sort of, you know, all of these people. And like, what have you learned for, over the years of working with them all? Well, I mean, I've learned a ton. It's been going on for so long that it's probably even hard for me to fully have perspective on where I was at that point in 2016 or something when I first went in there, maybe 2017. But um, Wayne is just, I mean, he's really, he's a very extremely talented uh, producer and engineer. Um, I think he gets some, you know, some of the best sounds out there really. Um, it's pretty, it was pretty, you know, it really floored me when I first started setting up sounds the first day of that first session and came back in to listen to everything. It was just like, you know, as we got it dialed in, I just finally came back into the control room to listen to it and was like, wow, this sounds just, you know, basically exactly like what I wanted to sound like, which is very, uh, um, unusual experience um but he yeah he's just extremely talented um it's been really cool it was really cool getting to know him and getting to work with him um i mean that, that's mostly all i can really say it, it's just like he's got extremely good grasp of how to get uh, the kind of sounds that he gets and he's probably one of the absolute best in the world at getting them so it's you know anytime you can work with anybody who has you know, who occupies that position in the world and their craft, I think it's probably worthwhile. Even if you just get to meet people who are the best, like one of the absolute best at something they do, even if it has nothing to do with your career or anything, it's probably worthwhile to go talk to them and hang out with them because those types of people are few and far between and they have uh, a lot of, you know, one would imagine that almost all of them have a lot of insight and interesting things to say, just even as people um, uh, beyond their craft, just because it takes a lot to get to that place as a, as a, craftsman of any type well that's what that's it i mean the, the kind of my personal reasons for asking questions like that are exactly that you know i love the um you know not necessarily like the way that somebody 
mics up a kit or whatever. Like you can look that kind of stuff up. It's more just the way that I enjoy when I meet people who are at the top of their game and watching the way that they interact with me and other people and just observing the way they deal with situations and, and all of that kind of stuff feeds into, you know, obviously there's like the skill set that they've got in terms of technical skill set, but then, you know, there's all of the other stuff, the way that they just hang out, the way they fit into the room, the way that he introduces you as an artist into the room and, and kind of goes, right, what are we, what are we doing today? And that, that initial kind of like thing and just the way, like observing how people behave in that way, especially people who are at the top of their game is inspiring because, you know, we're all, we're all shooting there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think Wayne and Daptone, I mean, I think that whole experience for me, um, I suppose to a certain degree coupled with the touring experience that I had once I started working with Panache, uh, when I first, when I worked with them as a booking agency and started touring in the States, which led me to Daptone too, in a way. Um, though that was all kind of like touring opening for bands like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and, and, uh, Yako Gardner. And, um, there's a lot more that I'm just not thinking of, of right now, but that was a cool thing where we just got thrown on stages with a bunch of bands that I felt like were kind of the premier bands of, you know, in the world that I was interested in and, and trying to be part of. And then going to Dapton was even, you know, in a lot of ways, even higher level and, and, but similar in the sense that it was, you know, these guys who were just doing a lot of stuff that I aspired to do and was trying to do. And they were like the best, a lot of the best people at it in the whole world. Um, I think, I guess like getting to see how they work, also getting like approval from them really brings a lot of confidence to you, especially as someone from Canada, like somewhat like feeling somewhat removed from a lot of the um, mainstream and even underground narratives about, about, you know, music and culture and stuff. Um, I feel like going there and getting approval and getting uh, to work with them and be released by them, I think kind of gives you a little bit more of a sense of being like, Oh, maybe I can be at this level. Like maybe I can belong at this level and seeing how people operate at that level. I mean, it's kind of like, I guess it's kind of like when, when athletes go pro pro and play in the, whatever the top league of their sport is for the first time ever, you just kind of hang out with these people realize that you can make it there also realize all the things that you're not doing nearly at the level that they're doing it. So you're like, well, I got to work on this, this, and this, but I'm managing to stay here sort of, which is great. And so, I mean, that's a, a great opportunity that I'm, you know, very grateful that I, that I got and uh, looking forward to, and hopefully it'll get more of those types of opportunities. Yeah, that's it. I remember someone, uh, I remember having a wobble about this exact thing. And the person I was wobbling to was like, uh, you're, you're in the team for a reason. And uh, you know, you've, and uh, that's it like it just you know okay well i'm in the team i might not be the best in the team but i'm i'm in the team and i'm watching the guys in the team and i'm learning <laughs> and hanging around that kind of stuff is like only going to make you a million times better i don't think there is any way to get to the top level besides being involved with top level people and kind of getting your butt kicked for a while <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um cool i mean i've got basically got two more questions and okay. The first question I've got is, uh, how would you describe what Yacht Rock is? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Because <laughs> I don't know what Yacht Rock is. I know what well, Yacht Well, it's is. a modern term, right? <laughs> it's not a real term. It was called, it, I mean, it's not, it is real, but it was, it's a modern internet retrospective term because it was used to be called, what, uh, AOR, right? Album-oriented rock or something like that. I think that's oh, what it okay. meant. That was like a 70s term that Yacht Rock sort of falls into. Uh, okay. But Yacht Rock is like, 
you know, a more humorous and entertaining term that's caught on way more uh, because it's made up by people like on, you know, internet threads and stuff like that being like, yeah, it's like Yacht Rock and that caught on. Um, obviously, it's supposed to sound expensive. That's obviously like <laughs> implied in the term in the terminology. Um, it's, you know, it's all over the place. My, my girlfriend has a term co- called that she calls certain types of music Coke folk, which I think is adjacent or overlapping with Yacht Rock. Um, with Coke folk, I think we, we've decided that it's basically stuff in the 70s and 80s where people who were like folky in the 60s or folky early on and have folk roots in their music are now making stuff that's like jazzier and funkier and like probably on more drugs and also like made, <laughs> making it probably more for club oriented, like it's post-disco and post like a uh, club dance oriented kind of music explosion. Um, and Yacht Rock kind of fits into that too. I'd say Yacht Rock though is just obviously expensive records. Um, I'd also say that Yacht Rock is basically just 70s or early 80s, like blue-eyed soul a lot of the time. A lot of times it's like very like, uh, you know, it's. It, I think if it was made in the 60s, a lot of Yacht Rock would have been not quite as shiny sounding. So it wouldn't have fit into Yacht Rock, but it would have just basically been, you know, white soul music with a lot of like you know it's just basically classic blue-eyed soul stuff so like hollow notes fits into that um there's a lot of there's a lot of different elements of it though that i'm certainly not necessarily the expert to be asked about <laughs> but I, i'm a fan of certain areas of yacht rock not all of it but i think when yacht rock is when i like yacht rock it's like i'm gonna like it a lot then there's a lot of stuff that i'm like too slushy don't like it doesn't hit the spot for me but if i do like it it's probably gonna be like my favorite record for the next like five years at this point in time <laughs> i'm gonna start using yacht rock a lot more as a turn of phrase i like it and, it is good yeah <laughs> and coke folk i'm gonna use that a lot too i think that's great that one that one's gonna spread out more i hope that was that one i feel like it kind of uh describes what we're making to a certain degree in terms of just being fun of, like just in a funny way tongue-in-cheek way but just like it's just definitely sounds like a lot of the music we were both me and pearl were into when we were younger but it's just a little bit more I don't know, just got a little bit more of that sort of like 70s, early 80s sort of like weird sheen to it that I think at the time was definitely coming from a lot of drugs and a lot of really nice recording equipment. Um, So the record comes out on June the 10th um, and you're touring the US. You've got about eight or nine shows. Is that is that right? Uh, Yeah, and more to come. I don't remember exactly how many, but we're doing... um, we have a release show for my record. Both uh, Pearl and I are co-headlining that show in LA on June 10th, the day the record is released. And then I'm going to tour in June opening for which on that tour, I'm actually not playing guitar with them, but they were kind enough to give me an opening spot. So I'm going to go on tour with them. And uh, Leclerc is also on that tour. Um, then we're going to do Pickathon in July, I think, maybe August. Um, and there's more that are going to be announced soon and uh, others that are being booked and then will subsequently be announced. So there'll be a bunch of shows coming up. Cool. Um, well, thanks very much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so there we have it. Michael Rout. I really do hope that you enjoyed that. Um, and as I said in the intro, do go and check out his record um, that came out uh, last week. Um, it really is fantastic. And uh, as I've said, he's become one of those artists for me that's a bit of a go-to when 
I'm not quite sure what to listen to, and I know I just want something that's kind of a, a little bit sugary, but also got some substance to it. This is what I put on. It just makes me feel happy, especially now that the sun's shining and I'm walking to the studio. I can put it on, and I, uh, I probably feel like I'm strutting a little bit when I, <laughs> when I listen to it, which is a little bit weird, but... Maybe I, I hope I'm not. I hope I don't look like an ass when I'm walking along, but I imagine I probably do. But anyway, I'm having a good time, so that's all that matters. Um, okay, so as I alluded to last week, I've been thinking about it, and I'm going to take a, a couple of weeks off the podcast. I'm actually going um, to do a residency gig on the Isle of Wight, um, which for those of you who are not in the, uh, in the UK, it's a little island um, at the sort of underneath the uk i mean the uk is a little island but it's an even littler island um so i'm off to do a residency gig and i'm going to use that time um to get a book together that i've been working on um of the isolated drum stem so i've done uh, you may or may not know i think i mentioned it in the uh, the episode i did uh, the the drum isolated drums i transcribed them and i write them out on sibelius and um i need to get the book together and uh having two kids around me and lots of work is not conducive to that. So I took this gig when I got offered it and I thought this is a really good opportunity to be fed and watered, carry on playing some drums and then uh, spend my days uh, just getting this book together. So I'm going to do that for a week or so. Um, and I will, in order to accommodate that, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off the podcast, give you guys a little bit of a break. Um, then I will come back to it. I think I've been running this podcast now for well over two years and haven't had a break in any of it so i feel as though <laughs> i feel as though i deserve one so that's what will happen after this podcast there'll be no new one next week or the week after i do have a couple of episodes lined up and i've got some interviews that i, I will be doing over the next few weeks so there's plenty more to come um there's plenty more in the bag already there's plenty more that have been recorded and there is there is more to come um, so do not panic, but I will be taking a short break. And likewise, I'll probably take a short break from doing the isolated drums for a few weeks um, just while I get everything order in order again. And uh, I want to make sure I'm delivering the best to you guys all the time. And as this sort of um, this thing I'm doing, whatever you want to call it, has grown, um, it's become, it, it's, it's just difficult. It's difficult to earn a living. Um, it's difficult to have the studio and, and it's so busy, you know, get a lot of people contact me and stuff and, and I just need to take a little bit of time, get everything sorted out um, get some better systems in place so that I can run it all a bit more efficiently. And that's what the plan is over the next few weeks as well as sorting this book out. So thank you for your patience and thank you for all your support. Um, have a good break, get out in some beer gardens and uh, and have a few beers and enjoy the sun and hopefully it will last for a little bit. Um, yes, and I will be back in a few weeks' time. Goodbye!